I didn't even think twice. As soon as he asked, I said yes. I was a freshman in college. It was the last week of school, and a friend had come up and said, hey, there's a couple of us going skydiving this week to celebrate the end of school. Now, he was a senior, I was a freshman, all the other people going were older. I felt pretty cool, but I really did want to skydive too. So for all those reasons, I said yes. So we headed out. I just remember being in a Jeep, top was off. It was a beautiful sunny day, headed over to Indiana because someone had recommended this place to go skydiving. And all morning long, we spent our time training. We got to learn how to exit a moving plane. We learned all the equipment we would be wearing. And of course, we got to hear all the different ways it could go wrong and what to do if that happened. Comforting. So we were all excited. We got geared up and they just said, you guys, we're sorry, but the wind has picked up since this morning. And it's just, it wasn't like super breezy, like you could tell, like the kind that breaks glass out of our stained glass windows, but it was just enough above a threshold that they said, it's just not safe to jump today. So we got back in the Jeep, came all the way back. It was still a fun day, but just disappointing because now I was ready, you know, I had all the training and I just wanted to jump. And they said, well, now that you've done the training, you just come, pick a good day, check the forecast, here's the wind level you need and come back and jump. Well, now it's summer. All of us are from different places and we're all back in our other cities. And we just never could find a time for all of us to get back together. So I had to go, I was like, I'm still going. So I called a friend and said, hey, you don't have to jump out of a plane, but will you come with me on the ride and cheer me on, take my picture? So she hopped in the car with me and we headed back to Indiana. And that's how I found myself in a six passenger plane with two strangers, an instructor and a pilot. Now, this particular kind of jump, I don't know, you've probably seen, apparently Joe and Kim have done the kind where you're strapped to an instructor and you're 12,000 feet in the air and you get to free fall, but the person's with you, so you feel kind of safe. Well, in this one, the first jump that you would do through this particular program was the parachute is somehow attached to the plane as you're leaving or there's some latch so that as soon as you fall out, you're only free falling like the length of the of the string, whatever that word is. And then the parachute's supposed to automatically open. Now again, if it didn't, we were instructed on what to do, but that was the first jump that we could do through this. Now, that means I had to decide to exit the plane on my own volition. There's no instructor to pull me on out. And we're in the plane, and so you've got the wing of this plane, and then like a bar that connects the wing to the body of the plane. And then there was these like cute little red handprints out there. And I was like, oh look, that's cute. And the instructor says, okay, so you're first gonna like sit on the edge of the plane, you're gonna reach over to that bar and you're gonna shimmy on over. Put your little hands on the red handprints. Now, then you're gonna hold and count till I count to three and then you're gonna do your fallback all the ways that we were instructed. And he looks at me and says, you're kind of small. You might blow off before you have a chance to get out there, but don't worry, don't worry. You're, you're gonna fall anyway, it's fine. I did not like that instruction. <laughs> Um, I don't want to blow off a plane. You know, I would like to exit on my own accord. So I was determined, let me go first, fine. Let me just do this. And I get out there and I shimmy way, way over and I hold on, I'm gonna do this. And he counts to three and I let go. And it was fabulous. I mean, I know it was probably like just tiny little free fall, but it felt like forever. And then I remembered all my instructions and I got to parachute 
through the air and zigzag back and forth and land on the spot. I even, I even hit my feet. Then I hit my butt. But I hit my feet first. I had so much fun. And I was digging around for a 1996 photo of myself. I have one picture. Because my friend was like, so nervous. And she's like, I think I took more of the sky. I emailed her this week. I was like, do you remember going with me? She goes, yeah. I couldn't figure out how to use your camera. Old school, before digital. And she's like, I think I have more of the sky than your actual self. But there's one of me on the ground in my parachute. And I, for the life of me, couldn't find it in my basement. But here's my certificate I found to prove that I did it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I didn't think of it as a risk, probably because I was 18 and cute boys asked me to go. And, and I just wanted to jump out of a plane because that sounded fun. I go on roller coasters and, and I don't think about all the risk. But in other situations, social situations, that feels a lot scarier than jumping out of a plane. Today, we're going to talk about people who took risks. We have been talking about the beginning of the church and last week, we met a man named Saul. And Saul was on fire for God, but he did not think that Jesus was God. And so when people started following Jesus, he was so adamant thinking that that was blasphemy, that he went after people who followed Jesus. He put them in prison. He approved of them being murdered. And then Jesus met him face to face. He showed up. And Saul became a believer. He saw the light quite literally. And so we're going to dig into Acts chapter 9 today. If you use a pew Bible, it's page 778. Um, and we're going to look at the day after, or just a couple days after, that Saul became a believer. And we see that he's immediately going out. And just as much as he was on fire against Jesus and his followers, once he became a believer now he's on fire, ready to go preach and follow this ministry that God has called him to. So we're going to begin in verse 19, and I will read for us. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. I want us to look at several groups of people in this scripture. And I love the word baffled. So the first group I want us to talk about is the baffled observers. Now, it doesn't say that they... They said that they questioned Saul. It doesn't say here that these people immediately joined in as believers yet. Um, it doesn't say that they were really hateful toward him either. So I kind of see this as like a neutral group. They see someone taking a risk because Saul indeed to go from completely one way to another, it's kind of a risk socially, right? To be like all the things you were doing you're now admitting was wrong. You're switching over this quickly to follow this new way. It's a risk that Saul was taking, and, and people didn't understand it. But they kind of kept him at arm's length here. And it makes me think of just the neutral observers that happen in life. And I was reminded of this when I was listening to or watching a Netflix special that Brene Brown did. If you've never 
heard her, I would encourage you to watch the special or find her as a guest on a podcast or find her books. But Brene Brown is a researcher at University of Houston, and she studies shame and vulnerability and empathy and courage. And she talked about risk as being like you're in an arena and everyone around you is watching. And of course you're going to fail. You're not going to do it perfectly. And it's scary out there. But that's where life is, and that's where change can happen, and that's where you can make a difference. But there's going to be a lot of people who are watching in the stands. And this is what she says about them. There are a million cheap seats in the world today, filled with people who will never once step foot in that arena. They will never once put themselves out there, but they will make it a full-time job to hurl criticism and judgment and really hateful things toward us. Just let it fall to the ground. You just have to step over it and keep going. You can't take criticism and feedback from people who are not being brave with their lives. So Saul was being brave. He was taking a risk. And he was going to encounter a number of reactions. These neutral people at some point were going to make a choice. He's praying and hoping that they will follow Jesus. But I am sure a number of them will become the critics. And he's just going to have to keep moving and not let it change his direction. Let's go to verse 23. Let's meet our second group of people. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. I have so many questions. How big is the basket? How sturdy was this basket? Who thought, let's put a man in there. I'm sure it's going to hold as we drop him down the wall. Notes aside, I want to look at the fearful conspirators because it says that they conspired to kill Saul, and I can just see this out of fear because if people were not listening to Saul, if he wasn't a persuasive person, then why go after him? Why care? So there must, they could, must have felt like people were going to listen. And I feel like that that reaction, so filled, so opposing someone that you would attempt to kill them, is because you don't feel strong in your own convictions or you're worried that your way, your power, your authority is going to be threatened. And just to think, Saul knew this. He knew the very people who were going to oppose him because he was one of them. And yet he preached anyway. And just a couple weeks ago, we talked about they killed Stephen. He was preaching Jesus, and they're like, we have to stop him, let's kill him. And now they're on a roll? Like, they think this is a good technique to keep following? I don't know. But I just find that this is often the way that we see in the scariest parts of the, of the world. Where an opposing view becomes dangerous. And we talked about with that, we saw that last week. And this week I was just thinking, what's our modern day example? There's plenty to choose from. But tomorrow being Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I was struck by reading and following his daughter, Bernice King. She is a preacher herself, a doctor, 
CEO of the King Center, and she doesn't pull punches when she talks about her dad. And on January 15th, this past week, would have been his 91st birthday, and she had some heavy words. She wrote on Twitter, many wish happy birthday to a man today that they would have hated then. The authentic, comprehensive king makes power uneasy and privilege unhinged. Never forget, he's not here to hear happy birthday because he was murdered. I went back and remembered that she was five years old. Five, when her dad was taken from her. Because he was killed for living out his beliefs. He wasn't there when she was a teenager and felt called into ministry. He wasn't there to teach her how to preach. She had to learn about him through stories from her mom, through videos and transcripts, just like you and I would learn about him. That's how she had to learn most of the things she knows about her own dad. And he was a man of faith who tried to live out that Jesus' love was for everyone. And he took so many risks, and he knew that, and he kept marching anyway. And now Bernice is taking a risk to remind us of the hard pieces. Because it's, I don't know if you see that happen, but you know, when people die and you want to lift them up and you want to bring out the positives, and she's trying to say, don't forget why he's not here today. Take a risk and stand up for those things as he did. Let's keep reading and meet our final group. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that Saul was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Okay, real quick note. Disciples here are all the believers that we know that are gathering. They're following Jesus. They're gathering together as the church. And the apostles are those who spent time with Jesus who are leading the church. So Barnabas is trying to say, hey, let's get some buy-in from the leaders here. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. How in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and he debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Our last group here is the believing risk takers. Because it took a risk to believe that this man, who once was so violently opposed to Jesus, was now among their brother in Christ. So it took them believing and trusting and taking a risk for Saul to even continue his ministry. He couldn't have done it alone. He couldn't have snuck out of the city of Damascus by himself. And here, when he was on somebody else's hit list, they found a way to help him escape. They took a risk not only in their faith because they believed that Jesus called him into ministry, but they also took a risk with their own lives because if Saul is on the list, of people they're trying to attack and they find out who is helping him, then surely the leaders will be after them as well. But it takes risks together. I just see that in our world today, like 
When we risk, it's so much easier when someone else is with us. I have learned from risk takers who are in this very room. I don't know if you've seen or not, but sometimes there's commonality from among us. Over the years, people have come to Echo and we'll see like waves of different people with similar um, jobs or maybe similar passions. And right now, I know that there's people here who have fostered children who are fostering now or are training to be foster parents. And I think it's exciting that you guys are all here in this small church to be together because you're taking a risk. You are risking opening your home, opening your hearts to kids who have come from traumatic backgrounds, kids who have pain, and they don't know how to heal. And you're living out your faith, you're living out the love of Jesus in your decision to open up your heart and home. And that, that's a role model to me. And I hope that you know that as you're risking your physical strength, as you're risking your emotional pain that yourself, and as you feel like it might be alone, I hope you can look around and say, hey, there's others on this journey with me who can understand what I'm going through. And even those of us who don't know that experience personally can be your prayer warriors and your support network. But I hope that all of us can look around and find someone here who is taking a risk that's similar to what we're dealing with. Maybe you can find out that someone has gone on a journey or is currently on the journey that you are and you can come together. Because I feel like God has brought us to this place at this time in order to grow and journey together. Because risking together is what's going to keep us going. When you try something new, it's scary. It's a risk to take a new job, to move to a new place. But it's also a risk to open your heart up to new friendships, to trust again because you've had pain and betrayal or disappointment in the past. But I hope you know that we're here to journey together. It's a risk to believe in a God that we cannot see. And let's just admit that, that some days it's more difficult than others to even trust that Jesus existed and cares for us. I believe he does, but we all have those days where it seems impossible. But I just want us to think, what risk are you willing to take for your faith? Because probably there's something in the back of your mind that you know you're being asked to be bravely do. And maybe you keep praying about it and you keep thinking of all the what ifs. Jumping out of a plane was easy, but when I have to make a life decision and I'm worried how people will think about me, I can give you lots of pros and cons. I can debate that forever. It's hard. It's hard. But other people can be affected when we take a risk. There's somebody out there, you might take a new job and wonder why did I do this and God has already prepared a person that he wants you to interact with there. 
You might be praying whether to say yes to something that's so difficult. And God already knows five steps down the road how you're going to be a different person because of it. But we need each other. We need each other. A life lived in faith is only going to work if we risk together. So that's my prayer for us today. What are you risking and how can we come alongside you? Hey, grab a parachute and you know you can call on me. I'm going to jump with you. Let's pray. God, sometimes the simplest statements can be the hardest things to try. And we can easily see when other people have taken risks and done great things for you. And that seems amazing until it's us. But we know you've given us so many abilities and talents in this room together as a church. There's so much passion and heart for life and for people here. So God, show us how we can use that to glorify you, to be a strong body of believers together. Show us where we need to take a risk to make the world better, to make us better, to lift your name high. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.